This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning, Axis family. My name is Don. I'm one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's my joy to bring you the word this morning on this Palm Sunday, the strangest of Palm Sundays, as Brooks would say. Uh, Palm Sunday is the day that the church recognizes the, the entrance of Jesus, the, the time when Jesus was really adorned as king. And if you've got your text open to John 13, where we are, you only need to turn back to John 12, 12 to see that on the next day a large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming, took branches out of the palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us, Lord, we beg. So that crowd meets him, and that church, as it formed, became known as Palm Sunday. And growing up, I'm so used to Palm Sunday being a time when we would bring in palm leaves, but this time, honestly... Um, as I grew older in Christ, Palm Sunday becomes very um, weighty for me. Weighty to the point that um, I feel crushed in some moments in my chest, thinking about the price of redemption. And nothing perhaps strikes that better chord than to hear us talk this morning, even of our frailty as humans. And therefore, Palm Sunday also takes on a, another significance in, in a lot of church traditions, and that is they take the leaves that, that we march in on Palm Sundays and they save them. And I participated in a Lenten service uh, this year where the pastor had saved the palm branches, a stack he said was about this big, and they burned them to make the ashes for Ash Wednesday, and it was fit in a little cup that he held in his hand. All those vibrant things that were alive remind us of our frailty and our need of a covering that on that Lenten service you receive the ashes across the forehead in the symbol of a cross. That we need some sort of washing to, to, to be in the presence of God. And so Palm Sunday brings us into that, that weight of Christ coming into Jerusalem. Context-wise too today, specifically for John 13, where we are, is a meal. But beyond that, we look broadly at the scope that John would give us. And, and John gives us, in, in the last chapter, next to the last chapter, because the last chapter is like an epilogue written after. He, he summarizes the, the last event. And that last verse tells us why John wrote the book, that we having seen and heard these things, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in believing, therefore, we might have life in Him. And that's what we're reminded of again as we approach this text, any text of John, that we then jump all the way back to what's called the prologue of John, those first 18 verses, again for context, that John opens up that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things 
that came to be came to be through him and nothing that has come to be came to be without him that he is the creator therefore that he is the word of god the pre-existing word of god that he was with god and that he is god and talking and referencing jesus christ and that in him was life and that life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And we hear those words, and then in verse 14 of the prologue, we realize that the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And we will feel that impact in this room of chapter 13 that we are about to walk through. We will feel that even as verse 18 of that first chapter begins to say that no one has ever seen God, God the Father, but Jesus Christ, the Word, the light, the life that overcomes the darkness, has fully explained Him. And that if you have seen Jesus Christ, you have seen the Father. We bring that context in to this simple room of chapter 13. We bring in the fact that the first 12 chapters of John cover three years. And that more important than, than the time, perhaps, is the setting of each major section of John. It is set around a time of Passover. The first one is mentioned in chapter 2. Another one is mentioned in chapter 6. And now in chapter 12 and the beginning of 13, we understand it is Jesus' final Passover. The Passover that he will transform into the very meal that you and I will take in a few minutes. So this text is weighty. The time is weighty. Knowing what he's going into crushes me. Why? I remember becoming a new Christian and celebrating Palm Sundays most of my life, not understanding the significance until someone told me of the garden where Jesus will transform the meal called Passover into this memorial supper that we call the Lord's Supper. Leave, cross the Kidron Brook and go into the garden and there in anguish of what is about to come, the betrayal, the sufferings, the beatings, the scourging, the crucifixion. He will sweat drops of blood because of the pressure and the anxiety. Therefore, it is these three years that illuminate the works of God, these 12 chapters. But when we get to chapter 13, everything slows down. Chapter 13 through 17 actually cover one meal, one setting. Chapters 18 through 20 cover the betrayal, the arrest, the trials, the punishment, the scourging, the death, the crucifixion. Such that these last eight chapters cover four days. So we slow down when we approach this text. We slow down understanding that in the first three verses, we are illuminated to some context of time. And, and this context of time gives us that it was the Passover, that it was his hour, and that there was a supper. That the Passover had come, and therefore we, we have to take, even as Christians today, a serious view of Passover, which will be this Thursday, this week, this holy week the Jewish people will celebrate Passover. And that Passover time was, was to bring back what had occurred to them in Egypt. 
It was to bring back the fact that they were led out of Egypt by God Almighty in conquering all the Egyptian gods and armies. That God led them out to be a free people, that they had been slaves. And that this Passover, which is instituted in Exodus 12, was to become a memorial for all generations since then. And that looked like this, that on that time when you were about to get into the service of Passover, each family would choose a lamb, a spotless lamb, on the 10th of the month. And they would keep that lamb for four days in their home and take care of it. On the 10th of the month, therefore, each family would take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household. And that lamb shall be unblemished. And on the 14th, You shall slaughter that lamb. Your lamb will be unblemished. And on the 14th, the whole assembly there will kill it at twilight. So a mass destruction occurred of lambs on Passover. Moreover, then you shall take the blood of those lambs and put it on your doorposts and lentils. You shall eat all of it, roasted with fire, that along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't let any of it waste, but rather eat it all. And whatever's left, roast it with fire into the morning. But the blood you shall put on your doorpost, because it is a sign that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And death will not befall your household as I strike the land of Egypt. And do this for a memorial, such that when you enter the land that I'm about to give you, as I have promised, and your children say, why is this night different? What is it about this memorial? You will tell them this story. That this is the day that the Lord passed over our houses, the houses of Israel, when he smote the Egyptians and spared us. And when that had been spoken, the people bowed and worshipped. That is carried through for generations. And Passover becomes a time when, when the cost of redemption and the mercy of God are held in both hands of the Jewish people. And we bring that into the room. We bring that into the room that this was Passover and that the lambs, even in this day and time, were being assimilated. And the historian Josephus tells us that the city swelled with people, upwards of a couple of million perhaps, and therefore as many as 200,000 lambs would be selected and slaughtered over a 24-hour period. We can feel the intenseness of the death of the lambs. And that context is not lost on John as he places these Passover moments in this first three major sections of his text. He has also told us through a witness called John the Baptist in the first chapter, verses 29 and 36, that when John the Baptist looked and beheld Jesus, he pointed him out to his disciples and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that echoes across the scripture that John writes. It is that that we take into this room. It is the timing of his hour had come that we take into this room. That Jesus in chapter 2 tells his own mother in, in the changing of the water to wine, what is this between you and me? My hour has not come. A couple of other times in chapters 4 and 7, we get these thoughts that that Jesus is not arrested because it is not his hour. And then in chapter 12, the Gentile Greeks come to see him 
And his disciples bring him, bring them to him. And Jesus says, my hour has come. Now my hour has come. And we realize here in the 13th chapter, he is fully aware of his time as he has been throughout his mission that he is on his way to the cross as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And the third element of time that we see in those first few verses is the supper. The supper that had become a memorial that's called a Seder. A Seder, therefore, means order. That there was an ordering to this meal and that the Jewish people had a very strict way that they ate it and that everything was set up in a, in a certain arrangement. And that, and that it began with, with a blessing and, and cups of wine would begin to be poured and at least four cups are poured during that meal that hearken back to Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, where God promises four things, each cup representing a different thing. First... I will bring you out. I will bring you out of slavery. Second, I will deliver you. And then after they had eaten the meal, they would take the third cup, the cup of redemption where God says, I will redeem you. And the fourth cup is you will be my people. It is that third cup that we believe Jesus transformed into this cup of this meal. That order is set around a specific time and place and done in a very specific order. And that's the meal that we strike here. We understand from John that, that two of his disciples had, had found the man carrying the water pot and that everything had been prepared. And those two disciples were John and Peter. And those two will be spoken about in chapter 13. John being the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter taking an active role, as Pastor Brooks has already read for us. And when we approach then this text, we see that the feast of the Passover was upon them. And Jesus, notice now the three elements of time combined with two participles. Jesus, knowing, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart. And here's the second one. Having loved those who were in the world, loved them till the end. The stem of that, that word, he loved them to the end. The main verb, he loved them, surrounded by the time elements and the, the participles of him knowing and him having loved them, he loved them to the end. And the stem of, of end is the same stem we will find in chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus Christ from the cross, it is finished. The stem of that verb means not just that something has been completed, but that it has been done to its fullest. He loved them to his fullest, to the utmost, to a limit that, quite honestly, humanity cannot fully understand. Jesus, having loved his who are in the world, he loved them to the utmost. He will quantify that in John 15 when he says, greater love has no man. He laid down his life for his friends. And we begin to feel that light of God in the life of Jesus Christ, having loved them and loved us as we hear about that through this prayer, through chapter 17. And yet even then, we admit that darkness has a spot on the earth in verse 2. During the supper, the devil already put it in the heart of Judas to betray him. That during this carefully planned meal, Judas who in chapter 4 is seen as one whose ambition and greed actually was robbing from the, 
the box, the treasury box that he kept for the twelve. We begin to see the darkness then it tries its best to extinguish the light and the love that is shown in Christ. And yet John sandwiches and squeezes that darkness here by verse 3 saying also that Jesus then knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. And I pause there. Grasp that. The sovereign Son of God knowing where he had come from, where he was going, but also what this week, what the next few hours for him would entail. He knew it all. He knew it all, and yet what we're about to see is, is abject humility by the creator of all life, where the creator will be seen to wash the feet of his creation where this Lord of life will stoop over to wipe the dirt off of those who will, within hours, one will betray him and the others will all leave him. Having loved his who are in the world, he loved them to the utmost. And so the meal is set. The meal is set in an upper room. And in the houses in those days, the roofs were flat. The houses were made of stone. And if you can only picture in your mind the, the men, the, the 13 of them walking to this place and then finding the, the external stairway, but perhaps a ladder they have found in archaeology. But I picture stone walkway, very narrow stones as they walk up to this flat area surrounded by walls and they get into the room having the dirt of the earth on their feet and custom would, would allow for someone to be waiting there with a basin. It's not just someone, but a slave, the lowest slave of that house would be waiting there to wipe the dirt. That is the custom of the day. And I wonder if any of them even noticed that there was a basin and water, but no servant. But there is a servant. There is a servant. One that Isaiah 53 has spoken about. 700 years prior to this meal, who has walked into the room with them, who is loving them to the utmost. And they gather in this place around a table that, that is called in the, in the Roman culture a triclinium. And it looks like if you're at home, make yourself a C with your arm and, and hand and you can you can see that that men would sit along this side others along this side and many along this side it is not like da vinci's picture of the lord's supper it is a very ordered table and in that culture the guest of honor would sit on this end and the host would sit in the middle and then they would be arranged by order of importance around the table such that I believe that, that Peter probably came in having heard Jesus preach even the week that he's in Jerusalem on not putting yourself in prominent positions at a banquet table. Luke 14 records that he even said it in a Pharisee's house again. So, so this teaching has to be on their mind. And perhaps Peter thinking, hey, I helped prepare this meal. He will call me forward to sit by him is sitting at perhaps the last spot. The spot of the lowliest, perhaps. I, I see it that way. 
I see John because of it says his leaning on Jesus's breast later in the meal. It's sitting on that first spot and therefore leaning on his arm because this table was 18 inches tall. He would lean back to hear Jesus. And Jesus would be sitting in the middle of that top row. And who would be sitting here at the next position of importance? Perhaps, I believe based on what we see in this order, it is Judas. Judas is at least close enough to dip in a small cup with Christ to let them know who the betrayer is. Judas is close. And we have prepared ourselves for this meal and this carefully ordered Seder where we will remember, we will dip things in salt water to remember the tears and the affliction in Egypt. We have dipped and tasted the, the salt of our sweat when we were slaves. We remember passing through the salty Red Sea. We will take bread, matzah bread made without yeast, and we, we will take three pieces and we will take the middle piece out and we will break it. And that piece will be hidden in a carefully wrapped white linen for later we will find that but in the middle we will we will put more apples and dates on that that matzah to remember the mortar we made out, out of with no straw for the bricks we will remember this can we not move on and i believe it's at the the second step where they wash their hands that jesus begins to rise from the table and make his way over to the basin that they all had ignored. Why do they ignore this? Because even in Mark 10, on their way into Jericho, into Jerusalem, they are arguing over which one of them is the greatest. And Luke records, even in this meal, Luke records, they still are arguing over which one is the greatest. And yet arrangement says Judas sits so very close. He loves them all to the fullest. Now Jesus is up, takes off his outer garment, wraps himself as a slave with a towel. And I wonder what Peter is thinking. Surely not. And Jesus begins to wipe the feet of each disciple, one at a time. Can you feel the awkwardness of the room? Can you hear the silence? Only broken by water being taken out of a basin to wash filthy humanity's feet. It is too much for Peter at whatever position he is on the table. If he's last, he gets there and he says, you, I love the way Brooks read that this morning. The, the Greek is emphatic. You are going to wash my feet. Jesus, you don't realize what I'm doing for you. But after, you will understand. And Jesus will go on in this meal and explain the benefit of, the, of his leaving and the coming of the Holy Spirit to bring understanding, to speak truth, to bring remembrance. But here, Peter, struck by social discourse, by the, the, by the influence of the world in an honor and shame culture, will not have this happen. You can't do that to me. You can't serve me. I would not serve one of them. 
This can't happen because that creates hierarchy. And, and if I was to wash their feet, it would mean I would be lower than them. Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing, but you will. I'm loving you to the utmost in abject humility. And Peter says these words again with a context of time, putting in actually a time that means never, ever, never, ever will you wash my face. Then Peter, if, if I don't wash you, you will have no part of me. And we see Peter swing hard to the other side as he is known to do. I can only see the others going, I wish he would be quiet in this moment. But Peter goes, okay, wash all of me. Not just my feet, but heads, body. Let it happen down to my hands. Let the water run over me. And Jesus makes a great truth. In John, he often does this. He speaks on another level, a reality that takes faith's vision and not our worldly knowledge. And at this moment, Peter doesn't see that. He, he sees only on the horizontal plane. When Jesus says... He who is washed needs only to wash his feet to be completely clean. And you are clean. Can you imagine this word? But not all of you. Not all of you. Jesus purposely uses two different words for washing here. He uses one that is meant to be the whole body, the first one where you wash the body, but then afterwards you only need to have your feet washed. Two different Greek words. And John records, in, in actually in Revelation, the same word where you are washed fully by saying this, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us fully and has washed us the complete word washed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and father to be glory we see that that is what is being spoken of even in this simple moment this meal and when Jesus had done that and Peter obviously now goes silent Verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet, put back on his garment, placed the bowl away, he climbed back and sat at his position at the table. If you're at the meal, would you not also be thinking, I'm glad that's over. I can't believe he just did that. Thank goodness, let's move on. What's the next part of the order we, we've washed? Let's, let's take the, the, the vegetables and start. Can, can we do that? And Jesus speaks. Do you know what I have done for you? The NASB says done to you. Two and four, the last word, you all, is a dative, which means it can be either two or four. Jesus says, do you know what I have done for you. And Axis family, this overwhelmed me this week with all that's going on in the world. The thought of this week, do we know what he has done for us? 
I believe there's a dynamic pause of silence in this room. No one answers. You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and that is right, for that is what I am, he tells his disciples. Then if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you might do as I have done. Critical word. It's not about us washing our each other's feet, but as the example, it is to be subject to great humility in loving one another to the utmost as our Lord and Savior has done during the Passover meal. So much so that, that Philippians 2, a, a text we constantly quote here at the Axis, I believe, holds this at the forefront of its thought. Have this minds in you, have this attitude in you, which also existed in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of the lowliest slave. And being found in the likeness of men and the appearance of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And before that reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what's going on in this room. That is what goes on this week, what it means to us. Jesus will then quickly give an example that, of telling, I, I, I know the ones that I've chosen here, but again, it's so Scripture will be fulfilled. Who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. For now I'm telling you this before it comes to pass so that you might know that I am. Catch that in this room. That Jesus tells his disciples what is about to happen, that one will betray him. And he says, I say this before it happens so that you will know afterwards that I am. It is emphatic in the Greek here that he says this. And he says it in various places in the Gospel of John as a piece of divine revelation. That Jesus Christ is taking here the, the words from Exodus 3 when Moses said, okay, you want me to lead them out. You want me eventually to start this Passover meal as a memorial. That is what it will represent. You want me, a, a servant, to do this of you. But I, the only way that can happen is if you give me some authority. Tell me who I can tell them who sent me. And God replies in Exodus 3, tell them I am has sent you. And Jesus here, therefore, equates himself and exposes the divine reality of who he is. He is the word made flesh. He is God incarnate who will lead them out of their slave. He is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He is I am. And he's telling them, tell them I am sent them. You will understand this later. In this pressing moment then, I just go just past 19 to give you this thought. That what occurs next is he tells them that it's the one who dips with me in the cup. 
And John overhears this. But obviously it seems that, that Peter can't get enough of this. And the, the Greek says he nods to him, gestures. He, he does something, he says, find out who this is. And whether they can hear it, recognize it, or see it, it goes unnoticed that Judas dips at the same time. And the great I am, the word of God, the light of life, looks at Judas, having washed his feet in a gesture of grace that we need to breathe in and says, what do you do? Do it quickly. And Judas arises from the table, heads to the door, and from the vantage point of this author named John, the one whom Jesus loved. He sees the dark of night. In verse 30, Judas leaves, and it was night. He sees the backdrop of darkness. And immediately, Jesus looks at the room and says, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Exodus family, he, he juxtaposes the light against the backdrop of the darkness so that we might see the greatness of the glory of God in him and in his abject humility to love them and us to the utmost, to the fullest. We see it painted against the backdrop of utter darkness when we know that he is the light that he is life and that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot extinguish it. That is what has happened at this supper. I pray this week that you contemplate the weight of the meal in the next seven chapters as we prepare for a glorious day that we call Resurrection Sunday. I will close us this morning as we prepare for the table, but close us in prayer before that with a hymn that I believe sums up this moment. So I'll ask you to bow at your home as I read a hymn in prayer to God called There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you that we have breathed in a grace-filled moment. But at the altitude of which, because this is at the utmost level of love, we can't fully get our breath. We, we can't fully take it in that, that, that this one who is fully God and fully man has washed the feet of fragile, sinful men, men who, though, will then be entrusted with the message of grace to be pushed out into the world. Father, help us to breathe this air of grace and to do as Christ your Son has commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. And Father, we praise you that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath 
that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. Father, ever since by faith I saw the stream, your flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme, and I pray it will be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme, and I pray it will be till I die. Father, bless us with that kind of heart, a heart who has seen Christ and therefore seen you and walked so very closely as his disciples. We pray this in the one who will suffer for us this week, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.